text uh, that we'll be in this morning is uh, John chapter 19. John 19, beginning in verse 31, all the way until the end of the chapter. This is uh, the word of the living God. John nineteen thirty one. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the, the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing in a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb which, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the, Jew, the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Spirit of God, unfold this great mystery to us that we might be brought nearer to the Savior and that our lives might be transformed for His name's sake. Amen. The cross of Jesus Christ was the devil's work. You can think of it that way. Scripture invites us to do that. It was ultimately the work of God. We know that. But formally, it was the work of Satan. All the, way, all the way back at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, you might remember in Genesis 3.15, God foretold that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. He promised, in other words, Satan, that he would inflict a deadly blow on the Redeemer. So, the cross in some sense, was an accomplishment of the prince of darkness. He was influencing the rulers of Israel in their deliberations concerning Jesus, as they agreed that he should be put to death. And before Judas went to betray Christ into the night, John says in chapter 13, verse 27, that Satan entered into him. So by the time also that the crowd came to arrest Jesus to begin the process of his execution, he, Jesus said, that the ruler of this world was coming. So the cross was Satan's work, Satan's doing. Satan actually had tried numerous times before to have Jesus killed. He inspired the Jews more than once to pick up stones and execute Jesus for blasphemy. But Jesus had eluded their grasp every time. So the devil had failed time and time again. But at the cross, there is success. The devil accomplished what he wanted. 
Jesus actually was nailed to a tree and he uh, did die. The Lord of glory did give up his spirit. But our text that we are in this morning covers the time period in which the body of the Lord is taken down and laid to rest. And you would think that of all the moments of all human history, this would be hell's hour of triumph. This would be the great hour in which hell rejoiced and shouted for joy. Perhaps the hordes of the underworld were celebrating with monstrous cheers, if I may speak in this way. Perhaps they were laughing and and making merry of the fact that the son had died. But I wonder if there was some nervous hesitation in their celebration. I wonder if maybe they weren't screaming as loud as they might have been. I wonder if they were not beating their chests as strongly as they might have otherwise. I wonder if the grin on Apollyon's face wasn't as pronounced as it might have been. Because the events surrounding the burial of Jesus' bo- body, they weren't exactly suggesting that he had been defeated. They weren't saying that he actually had lost the battle. Instead, if they hinted at anything, it is that his sovereign power was just still as active as it was in his life. If anything is evident from looking at these verses, is that Christ is still in control of all things. Even while the curtains are drawn and the stage lights are off, Christ seems to still be directing this play. In the, in the stillness of Friday evening and Saturday, He's still working, He's still moving. How can I say that? Well, consider with me, first of all, that he is in charge of the timing of his burial. That is clear. Look at verse 31 again. It says, Then the Jews, because it was a day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked, that Pilate, uh, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The expression day of preparation here is one word in the Greek, the preparation. Uh, they, they, as we know, were not allowed to work on the Sabbath, on Saturdays. And so they had to take care of all the things that, that they would need on Saturdays. They would need to take care of those on Fridays. Fridays would be the day of preparation, and it was a Friday. And this Sabbath, the day after, was going to be an even more solemn occasion than normal. So security, as it were, was going to be heightened uh, because... Um, this was not going to be a typical Sabbath. It says here that it was going to be a, a, high, a high day, a mega day in the Greek. Uh, it's a Sabbath of Passover week, much like we would have a Sunday of Christmas week. This was Friday of, of Passover week, an extra special, as it were, kind of, of, uh, of Saturday, a uh, day of worship. But there is a problem. And we know that. And that is that there are three men now executed, uh, crucified, right outside of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Why is that a problem? Well, because Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23 says that a man hanging on a tree overnight uh, would be an accursed man. And he would actually defile the land if he was left hanging there. So the Jews could could not have men hanging on crosses especially on this day, especially in this high occasion. So this forces their hand. This forces them to have to do something about this. So they go to Pilate, the governor, the governor and ask if the legs of these men could be broken and if they could be taken away. Uh, we've said before that typically what happened in crucifixion is that uh, the criminals died because of heart failure. If you're hanging midair like that, uh, all of, the, of, of your blood eventually goes down to your lower extremities and that cuts your blood pressure by half and doubles your heart rate. And after two or three days of that, you would suffer orthorastic collapse and you would die. Nevertheless, there was a way to speed up the whole process so that it wouldn't take two or three days for these men to die. And that would be by a practice known as crucifragium. The executioner would come and he would smash the leg of the victim with an iron mallet 
And that meant that they couldn't uh, prop themselves up anymore uh, on that little saddle that they had on the cross. And so they couldn't breathe anymore. And so rather than dying by heart failure in two or three days, they would die by asphyxia, perhaps in a matter of minutes. The Jews, they were asking this to be done. They were asking this to be done to Jesus, to Jesus himself, obviously to the criminals with him, but to Jesus. Uh, they were wanting for him to be uh, thrown, um, to be have, have his legs broken and for him to be thrown into a common grave, a, a disgraceful burial. Take him away. Put him in some sort of common grave with all the other criminals so that they could observe their Sabbath rules. This is the kind of thing that Jesus referred to when he mentioned that they strained out gnats but swallowed camels. They uh, had crucified an innocent man, even their own Messiah, and they wanted now further disgrace for him in a criminal's burial. And yet they're doing all of this they're, so that they could have all of their, their I's dotted and their T's crossed for church the next day. Finish the job in the most gruesome way so that you could then have your religious ceremonies done. This is uh, like, the, like the stereotypical uh, gangster, perhaps you've seen them in the movies, who kill people and fill the streets with drugs and they rape. And yet they make sure that they always cross themselves and go to mass on Sundays. And they are very kind to their mothers. <laughs> but the Lord Jesus, think about it, is using all of this hy hypocrisy, because this is what that is, hypocrisy. He's using all of this hypocrisy for the unfolding of his own purposes. He had planned for this to happen. He had planned to be crucified on the day of preparation so that the Jews would bury him on the same day because he needed to be buried immediately. And we'll see uh, what I mean by that. But, but how did he do that? Well, leading up to Passover week, he uh, stages himself right outside the city and he raises up Lazarus from the grave. And so all of the people who are, who are flocking into the city of Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate Passover now have all of their attention turned to Jesus Christ, who is now a wonder-working person who had just raised up a man from the grave. And so now he gets all of this attention. And what else does he do? Well, now he sets the stage so that he could have a triumphal entry, so that he could go into the city while the people are waving palm branches at him. He's coming in as the Messiah, and um, he is a conquering king, as it were. And now he goes into the city of Jerusalem, and what does he do when he gets there? Well, he walks into the temple, and he turns over the, ta the tables of the money changers. And so he exposes the corruption of the leaders of Israel, of the Jews. He puts them on, he puts the spotlight on them as corrupt and evil men. In other words, what Jesus was doing leading up to this Passover was he was setting himself up, turning himself into the greatest uh, perceived threat to the leaders of Israel. He is making them want to kill him and do it quickly. But because they can't do it so easily, he's a popular man with the crowd. He actually allows himself to be betrayed by one of his own insiders, namely Judas Iscariot. How does he do that? Well, right before uh, Passover, he accepts from Mary the anointing uh, of his feet with a very, very expensive Perfume, And this incites the murderous hatred of Judas against Jesus. He was a greedy man and he wanted to steal the money that would have otherwise been given to them for that kind of perfume. And because he couldn't get that money, he feels all this hatred against Jesus Christ and decides at that moment that he is going to go ahead and betray him. And so now he is looking for a, an opportunity to betray the Lord Jesus. Jesus waits until Thursday evening. He waits until he establishes the Lord's Supper. He waits right until the last moment. 
And on chapter 13, verse 27 of John, toward the end of the night, he tells Judas, go ahead and do what you are going to do now. Do your wicked plan or execute your wicked plans right now. And so by Friday morning, the Lord is hanging on a cross. All of this had been planned. He wanted to be, uh, he wanted to be dead on a preparation day so that he could therefore be buried the same day. Why? He had said repeatedly that he was going to be raised up on the third day. He was going to be, he was going to die and rise up on day, on the third day. Uh, back in John chapter 2, verses 19 and 21, he begins to make this prediction. Uh, John 2, 19. This is uh, actually two years before the cross. He tells the, the Jews themselves, before he even had told his disciples, this is early in his ministry, and he says, speaking to the leaders of Israel, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So notice he is saying, uh, destroy this temple. They won. And in three days, on the third day, I will raise it up. So there you have the prediction, which means he needed to be buried the same day on which he was killed if he was going to rise on the third day. It was actually the custom of the Romans to leave the bodies of crucified criminals hanging for the birds and the worms to eat. But Jesus had predicted that he would both be buried and on the third day after that, he would rise. So he made sure that he was killed by the Jews in their own hypocrisy uh, on the day of preparation. So that his body would not even spend one day outside of the tomb. And all of this shows, again, that Jesus Christ is in control of every minute of history. He, he rules every second as king over each. He directs Every moment of time, like a charioteer directs a chariot. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes in uh, chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter And I'll begin reading in verse 1. It speaks to the power of Jesus Christ over every minute of your existence and mine. It says there is, a point, there is an, an appointed time for everything. Appointed, a fixed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones, to go looting. And a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. This speaks of the fact that God has fixed a time for everything under the sun. Every minute of your existence is ruled and directed by the King of Heaven. And this is the kind of control that Jesus Christ exercises over creation. He has appointed a time for everything. This is, by the way, why anxiety in the life of the Christian is so inherently irrational. Because God is in control of all things. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12 and verse 25. Luke 12.
Look at verse, uh, I'll begin reading in verse uh, 23. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very, if you, if then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? In other words, stop being anxious about things in your life. God is the one who uh, clothes the the lilies of the field. He feeds the ravens. And so your job is not to worry about your life. You are instead to bring things to God in prayer and rely on Him and trust Him because He is controlling all things. Um, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here you have a God whom you worship, who is in charge of all things that are taking place, of every minute of your existence. And so why worry? Why give yourself to anxiety when He is ruling all things? So the best thing that you can do is pray and cast your anxieties on Him. He will take care of you as you trust Him. Because He will do what is always best for His glory and your good. But we see this, that God is in control of all things. Jesus was in control of the timing of His burial. He had determined that there should be a time when He should die and a time when He would be buried. And sure enough, that became true. That was the case. He was buried exactly when He needed to be buried because He was going to rise up on Sunday, and even to this day, our celebration is on the Lord's day of His resurrection. But having talked about the timing of the burial of Jesus, let's talk about the details of His burial. He was in charge of those as well, the details of, of the burial. There are a number of prophecies surrounding Jesus' burial that needed to be fulfilled, that that had been predicted in the scriptures and they needed fulfillment and Jesus is going to make them happen and we see them fulfilled uh, uh, in in um, in the closing uh, of chapter 19 the the first two of those prophecies um, have to do with the state in which the body of Jesus would need to be laid to rest it would have to have no broken bones when the body of the Messiah was laid to rest. They had to have no broken bones and it would have to be pierced. Look with me at verses uh, 32 through 37. Again, it says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and, the, and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may also believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, we have said before that the men who were crucified with Jesus, who are mentioned here in verse 32, they were probably insurrectionists. That would explain the, the severeness of the punishment with which they were being punished, crucifixion. But beyond that, they were scoffers and blasphemers. Both of them. I want to show that to you. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. And verse 38. This is again the parallel account of the cross by um, Matthew. And I want you to note what is going on here. Pilate um, had already had Jesus put on the cross. 
And it says this in verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him. We know that. One on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Going back to that prophecy he had made in, in John chapter 2. Uh, Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Verse 44, notice what happens. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. So Jesus is crucified with two thieves and they're both also insulting Jesus as he is dying. But we know what happens to one of them, don't we? Turn with me to Luke's account of the same, uh, same scene. Luke 23. Luke 23 and verse 39 Luke has skipped some information because he knows that Matthew has given it to you. And he is just filling in the blanks. And notice what happens after Pilate is said to have hung the sign. It says one of the criminals who were hanged there, who were hung there, who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Matthew said that. But the other answered. And rebuking him said, do you not even fear God? How did that happen? This man had just been insulting Jesus and all of a sudden there's this change. Now he is rebuking the other man on the other side. Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Here is a man who is saying, now I am a sinner and I have sinned and I am suffering justly. This is the first thing that you need to be saved. You need to recognize that you are a sinner and that your condemnation before God is just. You ought to be in hell. This man is saying, not only am I a sinner, but even the civil government should do what the civil government is doing to me now. All of a sudden, he's a man of justice. He cares for the right execution of justice. We're under the same sentence of condemnation. He says, and we indeed, verse 41, are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Here's another step for salvation. Declare Jesus to be in the right. Jesus is right. He is the blameless Lamb of God. He has never sinned. He is God the Son. He has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Crying out to Jesus Christ as his Lord. Here's the, the third step for you to be saved. Say, Jesus Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You are Lord of all. And I want to be your subject, your servant. Remember me. Have compassion on me. Plead with Christ that he would remember you. That he would have compassion on you. Amazing what God is doing with this man. And how did Jesus respond? Let's get down from this cross and let me, do, let me watch you do some good works. Let's get out of here and let's get baptized. Walk into the church and pour some water on you. And let's see if you'll then get into heaven. Now, truly I say to you today. Today, today you shall be with me in paradise. Not even at the end of the age. Today you will be with me in eternal bliss. This is the grace of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I don't, I don't want you to miss this, that Jesus Christ was indeed crucified with the two only kinds of people that there are in this world. 
There were two thieves with him. And he and they represent the only two kinds of people that exist. There are Christ's people, and then there is everyone else. There are his friends. This man became Christ's friend and his enemies. The other stayed an enemy. The other went to his own place. There are sheep and there are goat. There are children of the light and there are children of wrath. They are, there are those who are in Adam and there are those who are in Christ. There are wheat and tares. There are believers and there are unbelievers. There are elect. There are reprobate. There are idolaters and there are worshipers of the one true God. There are righteous and there are wicked people. There is no gray area. No gray area in any of this. You are either in or you are out. Now, what is the difference between these two groups? Well, not so much that one doesn't suffer and the other one does suffer. Not so much that one doesn't die and the other one does die. Because they both do. Of course, there is a generation that will not die because they will be alive when Jesus comes. But other than that generation, believers die. And believers suffer. Unbelievers die and unbelievers suffer. These two men still had to die. They still had their legs broken. They still had to suffer greatly. Even the one who indeed had given his life to Jesus Christ, he still had to go through great suffering. But what is then the difference between the two? Well, we know it is what happens after death. After death, these two men were separated. One wakes up in the flames and the torments of hell. The other one is taken up to glory. The same day this thief who, rep who repented was in paradise. Today he is in paradise with the Lord Jesus. And think about the nature of grace. This man had probably or perhaps killed people. He was uh, a kind of insurrectionist. We know that his uh, his friend Barabbas was a murderer. Perhaps he had killed innocent people and caused all kinds of atrocities and, uh, and, and, and brought, even by his own work, people into hell. And yet he, he ends up in heaven. He ends up finding mercy at the end of his life. This is the nature of grace. Jesus gives it to whom, whomever He pleases. And so again, here's this man's legs. His, they're broken. And he suffers as the other and dies. And yet, he lives after his death. Now, all of that to say, Jesus then has not his legs broken. When they get to Him, they notice, it says in the text that, He's already dead. It says that he, that he saw that. They saw that. He was already dead. And of course, we know that he wasn't dead by heart failure or asphyxia, but rather by his own power. We talked about this last time. Verse 30 says that he gave up his own spirit. This is the only time in all of history in which something like this has ever happened, that a man died by his own power. So by the time... The soldiers came. They couldn't break his legs. Think about it. He's not pushing them up anymore. They're not, uh, they're not pushing up the rest of his body, but rather their limbs. So it would make no sense. It would be unnatural to take an iron mallet to a, a limb leg that is just hanging there. It's obviously pointless to do that. And so they leave him alone. And remember, these men are trained executioners. They, they can tell when a man is dead or, or alive. They knew he was dead. But imagine that they go back to their commander-in-chief and they say, we, we know that they're dead. And maybe they're asked, well, how do you know that they're dead? They, we didn't break their legs and so, or his legs. And so they do something here. They come up with some sort of strategy. It's verse 35 says that one of the soldiers, he pierced the side of, of Jesus with a spear. Probably the left side so that he could get the, the heart and... Uh, and the lung and uh, uh, 
John confirms to us in verse 34 that he definitely hit Jesus' heart because it says immediately blood and water came out. Some people have argued before in history that, that this would have been a, mir- a miracle, but it's not necessarily the case. Jesus had lost a significant amount of blood uh, during the flogging, and that would have made his body go into hypovolemic shock. The kidneys, what happens there is that the kidneys, they shut down to preserve bodily fluid. The heart races to pump the blood that is not there. And that rapid heart rate actually causes fluid to gather in the sac around the heart and around the lungs. The term for that is pericordial effusion, so that the water and the blood that, that flowed from the womb Uh, or from the wound, I should say, signified that he actually had punctured the heart and the lung of Jesus. Uh, This was a a graphic illustration of the fact that this did happen. His heart was, in fact, pierced. And so that there was no way that Jesus could have been taken alive uh, from that cross. Because, uh, of course, some denier would come along eventually and say, well, see, he was in some sort of a coma. They didn't break his legs. And so, yes, they, they left him alive. But now that this happened, uh, you couldn't argue that. No, his, actu- his heart itself was punctured. So there's no way that he came out of that alive. And, 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 and John, who understands the nature of, of uh, the devil's work in seeking to deny every fact uh, of Scripture says himself that he was a trustworthy witness, that he was an eyewitness, verse 35. And he was seen, has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may also believe. In other words, he's saying, I saw this with my own eyes. The one writing this has seen it himself. I'm providing you with an eyewitness account. This is the truth, and you need to believe. The same Jesus, whom we say today is alive, of course, by the time John is writing, they are saying that he has risen from the grave and that he is reigning and he'll come back. And he is saying the same Jesus, whom we say is alive, was in fact at one point dead. And he conquered death. Again, because he is in control of everything, every circumstance he is in charge of. John tells us what two prophecies were being fulfilled here in this process. In verse 36, he says, For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. That's a, that's a reference to Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. Uh, in, that, in that passage, uh, Moses is pro- providing the instructions that they would need, the Israelites would, would need for Passover meal. And, he, and he's talking about the lamb uh, that, that they would have to uh, slay or sacrifice. And it says there, Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, the lamb is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. So by keeping, by holding back the soldiers from breaking on any of the, uh, the Lord's uh, bones, the Lord was signifying that he indeed was the Passover lamb. He was the lamb uh, to which Passover was pointing. Just as the Israelites back in the Exodus had been saved from death in Egypt by slaying a lamb and smearing its blood around their doors, so would all believers be spared from the second death, eternal hell, by presenting the blood of this lamb to the Father. You see, salvation again, salvation is not something that you earn or something that you work for or something that you deserve. But rather, salvation is a gift. It's a believing that God has provided the blood of His Son Jesus, of His Son Jesus that you need to be passed over by the destroyer. It's a gift. Now, verse 37 tells us of another scripture that was fulfilled in this whole process. Verse 37 says, now again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. That would be uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I'm not going to take you there for the sake of time. But that passage describes the future of the nation of Israel. It says that one day they will look with, with repentant mournful eyes to the God whose heart they pierce. And when Zechariah wrote that, it would have been taken in a, in a figurative sense, right? Uh, that Israel had turned on its own Lord and Master, on God. They rejected the God who was so good to, to them. And they might, have, might as well have 
taken a spear and dug through his heart. That is what they were doing. They pierced him. So, so Zechariah is writing in a figurative way, but this is now fulfilled in a literal sense. In the person of the Son of God. Through the Romans, they physically pierced the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prophecy is actually that Israel as a nation, one day will be given grace, the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will see their sin of rejecting Jesus uh, as their Messiah. And they will mourn and they will be ashamed of what they did with tears. And, but those will be healing tears. And that will be a saving look. They will look on Him whom they pierced. That is again salvation itself. A looking unto the crucified Son of God. Not something that you earn. Not something that you work for. Not something that you achieve. But rather a raising up of your eyes to Jesus Christ. Look on Him. Set your hope on Him. Set your hope on His work and not yours. Turn your eyes and your gaze not to you but to Him. Now... There's a third prophecy that Jesus fulfills in the process of his burial. So number one, he makes it so that by the time he's buried, his body is in the right state. No broken bones because he is the Passover lamb. But he is also pierced because God had said that they would pierce him. That's two prophecies. Here's a third. He had promised that in dying, he would save sinners. Now read with me again verses 38 through 40. Back in John 19. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, that would have been a town somewhere in Judea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing in a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So this is the, now the actual account of the burial of Jesus' body. And it involves two main characters. I love this account. Two main characters, namely Joseph and Nicodemus. None of his disciples, his disciples were nowhere to be found, except for John, who's kind of watching afar off. But you have these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They had a lot in common, these two men. Joseph, on the one hand, he's mentioned in Scripture only in connection to the burial of Jesus. But John tells, tells us right here that he's a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. And we know that to be the case also of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, in verse uh, 39, it says that he had come to Jesus by night. Uh, and that is the account that is recorded in John chapter 3. It says back in John chapter 3 that he had believed that Jesus uh, had indeed divine power. That he was a teacher come from God. But he wouldn't risk being seen with Jesus publicly. Um, so he comes to him under the cover of darkness. So these men had this in common, that they were secret admirers, so to speak, of Jesus. Now that's a problem. Uh, back in John chapter 12, we are told the reason why a man would be a undercover Christian. We are, we are told the motivation here in, in John chapter 12, verse 42. It says, Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in Him. They, they, they believed in Him. They, they thought that He indeed was the Messiah. Not so much that they put their faith and their trust in Him for their salvation of their own sins, but rather that they believed that He was who He says, said He was. They believed in Him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him. Why? Why do people keep their faith in secret? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So, 
these men are in trouble because they prefer the approval of men over God's approval. And in fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, that those who would deny Him before men, He Himself would deny before the Father. And so you have these two secret disciples who are in trouble because they are bound to be denied by Jesus Himself on Judgment Day. But beyond being secret admirers of Jesus, both of these men had been parts, they had been part of the Sanhedrin, the, the highest ruling body of the Jews. Mark 15.43 says that Joseph himself had been a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. And, and John says that Nicodemus was also a council member. And he was also a teacher of Israel. So he was a notorious religious teacher in the nation of Israel. These men were high ranking in that nation. They were very prominent men. And this is, as we know, the, the same ruling body that plans the execution of Christ. Of course, they don't join the Sanhedrin, but they are part of it. And it does say in Proverbs that not only the fool is destroyed, but the companion of fools is also destroyed. And these men are companions of fools. They are in trouble. And they are also in trouble because they are wealthy men. They are living under the temptation of having riches. Matthew chapter 27 verse 57 says that Joseph was rich and Nicodemus, we know he was rich because of the amount of spices that he brings into this burial. Uh, that shows him to have been very wealthy, as we'll see. But the problem is that the Lord himself had said in Luke chapter 18, verse 25, that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. So you have these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, with all of these things working against their well-being and their eternal salvation, right? On the one hand, they are, they are man-fearing rather than God-fearers. They are part of an assembly of wicked men. And they are also living under the temptation of having wealth. But something is happening to them. We can see it right here. Verse 38 says that Joseph... Ask Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. This would have been no small thing. This would have not been a secret thing. Think about it. The Jews, they, they're invested in having these bodies taken down. They are watching because they know that it cannot become nighttime before the bodies of Jesus and of the two criminals who were crucified with him were taken down. So they're watching. They want to make sure that those bodies are taken down. And um, they, they wanted them to be taken away. In other words, they wanted Jesus with the other two to be laid in some common burial place. They wanted Jesus to have a disgraceful burial. But here is a man uh, who wants to give Jesus an honorable burial. In fact, Matthew tells us that when he goes to ask Pilate for the body, it says that he gathered up courage. Before that, he had been a coward. He had been fearful. But now he gathers up courage and goes and says, give me the body. This was a, a, a declaration of allegiance, a public declaration of allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. This was going to cost Joseph his reputation. This was going to cost him his position. This was going to cost him his friendships. This was probably even going to cost him, as far as he knew, his own life. And the same was true for Nicodemus. Because it says that he joins uh, Joseph in burying Jesus. And, and he brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes so large that he would, have need, he would have had other men helping him carry all the stuff that he's bringing. Uh, these would have been spices. They typically were used for embalming. But G the Jews did not use... Uh, they did not practice embalming, but they still would wrap up their dead in linen wrappings drenched with perfume to, uh, to mask the, uh, the odor of decay. And our translation says that it's 100 pounds, but you can actually translate that also as uh, uh, or, 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 or see the, the, the meaning of that word to be 65. Uh, so it seems rather most scholars would probably agree that it's 65 pounds, not 100. But that's still a lot of spices. 65 pounds of spices. You would need a few people to carry that in. Uh, it's extravagant. Very much extravagant what he's doing. 
But it's not unbelievable or, or impossible because Gamaliel, it says, uh, the elder, he would have been, would have been a, a public figure in Israel. He will be buried with 80 pounds worth of spices. But Gamaliel was a public figure. This was everybody bringing in spices. In this case, this is one man. One man bringing 65. This was a, an extraordinary gift of all-out devotion. He's not hiding this. These men are giving Jesus the burial of a king. But this needed to happen, right? This needed to happen. These men, they had hidden in the shadows too long. And now they're coming out saying, no, we are identifying ourselves with Jesus. We know that if we love our own life more than we love Him, we will lose our life. We will not be worthy of Him. Jesus had said that he who loses his life for my name's sake, he will find his own life. And so they knew that they had to give it all up. They knew that they had to risk all things for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because in his economy, again, you either worship Jesus and Him alone, or you don't worship Him at all. But the question that we have to ask here is, what changed? What, what was the thing that did it for these men? Um... And here's the answer. It was the death of Jesus that did it. When he was alive, they were paralyzed with fear. And when he died, they are seeing divine glory. The, the centurion himself, we know his story. When he saw Jesus died and breathe his last, he then said, truly, this was the Son of God. And this same death had made Joseph and Nicodemus' hearts melt. They saw divine glory in humiliation. You would think again that by the cross, you would think that, that once Jesus died, these men would then go away saying, we're glad that we never supported Him. That's not what happens. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25 says that the weakness of God is stronger than men. Even in His own death, Jesus shows His own divine power and His love in becoming nothing, His own otherworldly humility. And so, the salvation of sinners, they, 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 uh, this is what is happening here. And this is a, uh, a fulfillment of previous prophecies. Look at uh, John chapter 12 and verse 24. This is, uh, this is Jesus Saying, unless I die, there cannot be a great uh, multitude of, of, of sinners be saved. Truly, truly, I say, this is uh, John chapter 12, verse 24. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the, into the earth, this is him, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And verse uh, 32 says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He had said, If I die, then salvation. And here you have salvation. So, in death, Jesus ensured that no bones of him were broken, that his side was indeed pierced, that sinners were, were saved. And I'll give you one final, one final circumstance that he is controlling here one final prophecy that he is fulfilling in his death and that is that he would be laid in the tomb of a rich man back in our text verse uh, 41 says this now in the place where jesus was crucified there was a garden and in a garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid therefore because of the jewish day of preparation since the tomb was nearby they laid Jesus there. And we know uh, the place where he was crucified was Golgotha. And uh, we said before that this would have been a, a hill right outside the city of Jerusalem. And, and somewhere there, there was some sort of orchard or, or plantation. Uh, the, the Greek for garden here suggests that this would have been uh, something like that. And there it says that there was a new tomb, probably an artificial cave. And the synoptics, they say that that jo Joseph of Arimathea actually owned that same tomb himself. And so this is uh, the place where Joseph was supposed to be buried. This was his tomb. But 
the circumstances dictated that if Joseph was going to get the body himself, he also was going to have to bury Jesus in his own grave that was meant for him. Why? Well, again, this is the day of preparation. And for the Jews, a day was considered first evening and then morning, which meant the Sabbath began Friday evening. As soon as that sun went down, it's the Sabbath. You cannot be outside. You will be in trouble if you are found doing some work. And so it would have been impossible for them to be transporting somebody uh, around in that area. So, so uh, perhaps by the time Joseph gets permission from Pilate to take the body, this is all happening rather quickly. By the time he gets permission uh, from Pilate to take the body and Nicodemus is securing the spices, the sun is already beginning to set. And so they rush and they know, Joseph knows that, that he owns a tomb in the same hill. And so he knows he can take the body of Jesus and bury him right there. And that fulfills the scripture. We know that. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men. The Jews said, take him away. Bury him with the other criminals. So they assigned his grave with wicked men. And yet... It says, the text, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. See, here's yet another prophecy that is fulfilled. Even in death, Jesus is directing all things just as he pleased, uh, making one prophecy after another Come to fulfillment. He, he's making good on all of the promises made in the word of God. And that should make you see that the word of God cannot be broken. That it cannot be broken. That the word of God doesn't fail. Uh, Psalm chapter 12 verse 6. This is a powerful, a powerful text of scripture to consider. Even as you see how Jesus Christ was managing to fulfill all of these prophecies in his own burial. The, the, the text that you ought to come to and, and to repeat is one like this one. Psalm 12 verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times, you Lord will keep them. That it says that it's, that, that it says it's as silver tried in a furnace seven times, that means that it is precious. The Word of God is precious. You cannot put a value on it. It's the delight of the saint. But more than that, that it has been put in a furnace and tried seven times, that means that the Word of God has been tested in every way possible. That, that it has been put in every kind of situation to see if it holds up and every time, invariably, it holds up. Not one saint has ever been deceived by the word, nor ashamed that he trusted in the word. And if there was ever a situation in which you would think the word has failed, it would be something like this, when Jesus himself was dead. And when he was ready to be laid in a grave. If there ever was a moment in which things got dark, it was this hour. And yet, we can see as we go around these texts that he is having, exercising as much control as ever before. So you say, knowing this to be true, then what, can, what circumstances can get between you and your good and God's glory? What, what can fail? What can, what can make God's God, the Word of God fail in my life when this Word is so powerful. This is why uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together. This is like counter-rotating wheels uh, that make the hand of a clock uh, move forward together. Sometimes you have adversities that go one way. And then uh, they, they, go, they rotate in one direction and you have good things that rotate in the other direction and they seem to be working against each other and yet the hand of the clock is still moving forward always. And so he says, all things, they work together harmoniously 
They work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. So then he goes on to say, So neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Certainly Satan could not keep us back from the love of God. Hell at this moment, they seem to have conquered during this time of Jesus' burial. But Jesus was only working for, his, for a greater victory here and a, and a worse defeat of the devil. Colossians 2.16, I'll close with this passage. says, When the Father had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them. He utterly humiliated them having triumphed over them through Christ. So the cross was Jesus' victory and ours as well.